Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy, where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And today is a special episode uh, where we've talked about going out of order, and we're going to jump back and forth into time with this piece because I brought on a really good friend of mine. Her name is Christy Money. Christy, can you say hello? Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for coming. This is about the third time, second or third time we've tried this because uh, Christy lives in rural Georgia and it's really <laughs> hard to get an internet connection. So she is trekking out to the library to talk to you. And Christy is part of the Ordained Women Executive Board and she recently wrote an op-ed in the Salt Lake Tribune about the new church polygamy essays that came out. It's uh, currently November 2014, and the church just recently published some essays on plural marriage. Christy wrote an op-ed saying that she was disappointed with some of the language used because it it could potentially contribute to um, increases of sexual abuse and molestation and grooming. And it was a very controversial Op-ed. I think it was fantastic, but she, I think that, what, what is it now for comments on the trip? Is it over 3,000? Oh, I, I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like tons and tons of comments and it sparked this huge discussion. And so I brought Christy on to talk about this because I wanted to talk about this. I've been really, really hesitant to talk about this stuff because in Mormon studies in particular, this is a subject that you don't address. You're very careful about it. And if you do talk about it, usually you are marginalized by the larger Mormon studies community. Now, there's a whole spectrum of apologetics, apologetics being one end of the spectrum and then critics being on the other end. And it's a sort of very Mormon paradigm of believer and unbeliever, critic and faithful. And it's a paradigm that I reject. I think that everybody's on the spectrum. But in Mormon studies, it's pretty like rigidly adhered to in many circles. And so I've had people say to me, why haven't you talked about Sarah Pratt? Why haven't you talked more about Martha Brotherton? Why haven't you talked about some of the women that Joseph uh, had contacted and asked to be a plural wife and they rejected him? And the main reason was... Uh, I didn't want to engage in this sort of debate. I think that there was a part of me that was worried that my work would be seen less credible, that this research would be seen more biased if I if I talked about those stories. And Christie's op-ed really has made me rethink that because as a Mormon feminist, I feel like it is not only within my best interest, but it, it is my duty to stand up for women that are marginalized and this practice has a lot of potential to do that. So we're going to talk about these really controversial issues. Of course, this episode needs a trigger warning. And we're going to talk about Christy and what she knows about this. But I do want to say that uh, in Mormon studies, if you come in with any sort of bias, uh, it's divided into those two categories, right? Faithful or critic. And there's there's not a lot of room in between. And when I started this series... 
I very much wanted to be respectful of that dichotomy and I never I never really liked polygamy and I thought it was wrong for me. However, I wanted to respect the voices of the women who lived it. I didn't want to diminish their lives and I still don't want to do that. But the evidence since doing this series has become overwhelmingly clear to me that the majority of Mormon polygamy was abusive coercive and damaging. And if I don't say that, if I don't say that to everyone listening, then I feel like I lose my integrity. And if I'm marginalized for saying that and people call me a critic for saying where the evidence points me, then so be it. And if I continue to do this series and I see stories that change my opinion of that, then I will change my opinion of that. But I think we do a disservice to women, especially Mormon women, when we continue to make excuses only because we're trying to protect the faith. So with that big uh, soapbox aside, Christy, <laughs> sorry about that. Do you want to tell us about your op-ed? Sure. Well, um, just as a little bit of background, I I worked in a, in a prison rehabilitating sex offenders. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty well, well acquainted with with this issue of grooming and, and even more specifically, I didn't talk about this in the op-ed, but I, um, it was my duty as a psychologist to, um, to interview these sex offenders for not only their offense. So what, what they did, um, to, to these, these children, but also their entire sexual history and which often involved, um, them being groomed by someone else. Um, so, and, and their ability to, um, progress through the program involved them telling me the 100% complete truth based on a polygraph. So they would be tested with a polygraph afterwards, say, did you tell your therapist everything about your offense and then your sexual history? So, um, so I've got, I got a lot of details about grooming patterns, um, while I, while I worked there and uh, it was very tough stuff. So, um, so when I read the the church's essay, it actually it didn't strike me right away. It was the, about the next day when I saw that um, that the, the these essays would be used in teen curricula, so seminary and Sunday school, um, and the church um, put that in the Deseret News. So I mean, I wasn't just speculating; they, they mentioned that. That I went, oh man, this it, it brought me back to to my days working in Texas and and my worry. That um, that leaders or or um, men with, with some pretty bad intentions could use the very good intentions by, by the essay's authors to do some pretty horrible things to um, young women and men, for for that matter, young men too. Um, so so yeah, I, I it was it was a really tough piece to write, but and it's been, it's received a, a lot of um, a lot of pushback, but you've gotten I, some I, hate mail, right? Oh yeah, quite a lot of hate mail, actually. When we first um, recorded this, it was like the day after it, the, it hit, and I was like, "Have you gotten any hate mail?" And you're like, "No, actually." <laughs> but it had only been like less than 24 hours, so. Yeah, yeah, I was overly optimistic. I thought, oh, you know, people can agree to disagree, but no, I, I got some some pretty strong pushback. Lot lots of. Um, Worry that I was an apostate trying to undermine the church, and that I was calling Joseph a pedophile. Which, for the record, I didn't. I don't think he was. But uh, it's, it's been a rough few days. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Well, uh, I want to ask you a few questions. And first of all, to the Joseph as a pedophile thing, I've said this on the podcast before, and I've gotten a lot of pushback as well. Pedophilia refers to an attraction to prepubescent children, and there is no evidence that Joseph Smith was attracted to prepubescent children. Uh, All of the women that he had unions with, uh, you know, were post-pubescent children, and even Helen Marr, who was 14, describes, self-describes herself as more mature for her age. Yeah, that's, that's correct, and I completely agree with that assessment. So, uh, Christy, will you first, I want, I want to, you to do two things first. Will you tell us what grooming is, and then I want you to tell us how you found that in the essays. Sure. Well, um, the definition of grooming involves calculated and systematic uh, methods of someone who is in a power position over an often younger person to um, to get them to do what they want. It's pretty pretty simple. Um, so for our purposes, anyway, this involves Joseph convincing these um, younger women and and older women to to marry him, and um, and whether or not. There was sex involved is um, is not as relevant to me as the the pattern of of coercion and using his power as an older male a leader the religious leader prophet to get his way um, that that's what I noticed in the essay so the so- angel angel with the flaming sword basically it, it says it all there. So you see the authors as trying to privilege, this is my wording, trying to privilege Joseph Smith's reputation and defend his behavior as enabling future behavior, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Ascribing his behavior to God's will and that Joseph was just being obedient and that these girls were blessed for being obedient was a serious red flag for me. And we know that uh, this is not Mormon-specific, right? Many, many, many religious uh, fi- authority figures have used their status and power to take advantage of fi- the faith of congregants, right? Oh, absolutely. No, we we don't have the monopoly on that. However, uh, one thing I do think that we're really particularly gifted at in Mormonism is really making excuses for it. I mean, we like to call it out in Catholicism. We say sex abuse is wrong. Uh, in the FLDS, we say that's wrong. And however, when we look back to our old history, there I just see constant excuses. I see scholars constantly debating whether he had sex with Helen Martin. And like you said, that's less important to me. We do know that Joseph absolute, absolutely controlled the sexuality of Helen Mar Kimball. Because even if he wasn't sleeping with her, she has that that very heartbreaking story about wanting to go to a dance. And her father is saying, you can't go to a dance, you're a married woman now. Her sexuality was absolutely policed as if she were a married woman. There, there There are layers and layers of problems that don't even involve Joseph actually having intercourse with these women. And I feel like those are overlooked, and the loser in the situation is almost always these women in in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, my my supervisor at the prison was very clear in saying that that a lot of sex offenses aren't. It's not about the sex. It's it's about the power and control. So 
you're right. I, I agree with you about, about Helen's case specifically. So I want to talk about some of the controversial stuff that I haven't touched up until this point. Um, because, you know, I, I'm reading about contemporary polygamous sects now. And one of the things that uh, a lot of researchers are doing, it's, you know, contemporary research on modern day polygamy is in its infancy. And so again, when we're talking about polygamy, I'm talking about Western polygamy. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about any other issues um, for now, but basically they're in Western, particularly Mormon polygamy, there is a hierarchy of power and it's usually the prophet and he has the this it's sort of this polygamy caste system and then it's broken down into other caste systems so the prophet is on top with his with his wives and then the men underneath him and then the men underneath them and we see the similar power structure in the mormon church and then within the families within the actual marriages there's a caste system there's usually a favorite wife and she is treated better than uh, usually the other women, and she's given more privileges. Her children have more privileges and protections. And we see various forms of this sort of caste system from the very beginnings of Kirtland to contemporary um, issues. But one thing that I was reading a researcher talking about a specific sect in Utah, and he was saying um, that the stories from women who have escaped the sect are very different from the when, from the women he's interviewed that are within the sect, right? And he expects, mm-hmm. and he's saying, you know, there's that's understandable, and there's a reason for that, because it's this whole faithful apostate dynamic that we were talking about earlier. However, what is interesting to me is in the stories that are maligned by scholars, like Martha Brotherton and Sarah Pratt, for example, those stories are not radically different from the stories that faithful Mormon women were telling about their own polygamy. And so I think that that's interesting. Of course, there are some differences. Some things are exaggerated, probably scandalized um, and changed. But the methods are not that different. There's a pretty common pattern that Joseph Smith used when he you know, went to someone that he knew and many other prophets, including Brigham Young would, would take this on. And one of the things was that these men usually, uh, approached women that were close to them. They had access to, or that were uh, members of men in their family. So do you want to talk about in grooming behaviors, um, this, this element of it where people are victimized usually by someone they know? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. The um, the statistics are overwhelmingly that that the victims um, knew their their perp and um, and it's a it's a matter of um, accessibility. Um, that and that's. I mean, people always wonder why why this person? Why did they choose this person? It was, it was most of the time it's well because they had an easy opportunity and they took it. Um, so that that's why in the in, in my op-ed, I, I mentioned uh, worthiness interviews. That, that we reform that process because it's um, it, it's a really uncomfortable, um, well, at least it, it was for me, um, way to um, potentially um, exploit youth. I mean, and, but let me clarify that I, I think that this is this would this is not the norm by far, um, but just the chance that it, that it could happen and that we have. Um, we have a policy in place that where there's a one-on-one um, 
meeting with a youth about, I mean, as young as eight years old, about sexuality, it it has the potential for exploitation. So I, my point is, let's minimize accessibility as much as we can, and um, because yeah, like like you said, it's there's often, um, almost always a familial or social connection for um, for victimization. And the added element in these stories is this is this position of authority, right? We see the men approaching women, and I and I genuinely believe that a lot of men that approached women believed that it was that they were having to do this from God. This is what they believed. But uh, oh, yeah. that's another yeah. element into this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. They, it's <laughs> authority is is a huge dynamic in in these offenses. So. One of the things that we talked about in our other recording, we were talking about the reason why uh, the church has sort of distanced themselves from polygamy. And I, this is what I've been arguing online ever since the essays came out. I don't think the church was deliberately trying to lie and deceive people. Um, I think that my working theory is that if they knew that if um, they talked about this or if they held on to some of the old doctrines like Adam God, I think Brent Metcalf in his Mormon Stories interview says that Marky e. Peterson said, yeah, that we can't teach Adam God or people will will practice it. He didn't say Adam God was wrong. He just said if we teach the Adam God doctrine, then Mormons will want to practice polygamy. And we see this we see this so so much throughout church history. I think that the reason why church, the church doesn't talk about polygamy is they're worried that they're going to talk about it or that they're worried that people are going to practice it. And we have many contemporary examples. Um there's the the Tucker and LeBaron case in France where this this charismatic missionary starts finding this history and he starts talking to other um, actual polygamists in the United States and says, oh my gosh, there's actual doctrinal evidence for this practice. We better be living it. And he convinces like all these people on his mission in France to start doing this. And then there's a, you know, a missionary or a mission president in Australia that does the same thing. He starts committing sister missionaries to be his plural wives in the next life. And I actually just recently met a man last year um, who did the same thing. He went to the temple after doing all this research and he had this revelation of what he considered to be a revelation to take on other wives. So he and five women moved to New York. And so there is we're, you know, vastly understating this doctrine and the influence and importance in Mormon scripture by saying that the church is just lying to try to cover it up. I think that they were under legal obligation to distance themselves away from it. And this is what you're asserting basically in your op-ed is that women or people are going to read this and look into this, right? And and start doing these, repeating these same patterns. Yes. As as long as Joseph's narrative is favored and um, Joseph is is the hero who obeyed God um, without any mention of you know even pos- even the possibility of of making a mistake or getting his wires crossed. Um, yes, that is exactly what I'm worried about. And and so what we're going to talk about next is we're going to talk about some of the women that Joseph did approach, that it fell through. And the concern for me is when you read their accounts and you read the accounts of considered faithful Mormon women, and some of these women would 
would remain faithful. Uh, the language is almost identical to the language that contemporary some some contemporary fundamentalists still continue to use, and so that that really strengthens your argument that if they see a prophet of old doing this, they're going to repeat it. And nowadays in contemporary you know life, we say that's gross, that's grooming, that's sexual predator behavior. However, we can't for whatever reasons ascribe that to these men of old. And there's a problem in that. So I'm just going to read a list of some of the women that are cited as um, Joseph approaching and turning down. It's quite a long list, and there were probably more. But we know of Sarah Granger Kimball, Rachel Ivins Grant, Lydia Moon, Cordelia C. Morley Cox, Esther M. Johnson, Nancy Rigdon, who's the daughter of Sydney, Sydney Rigdon, Sarah Pratt, who was the wife of Orson Pratt, and uh, Jane Silverthorne Law, the wife of William Law, Lenora Cannon-Taylor, Melissa Schindel, Emmeline White, Mrs. Robert Foster, Pamela Michael, Mrs. Caroline Grant-Smith, Lucy Smith-Milligan, Levina Smith, Mrs. Marks, who was the daughter of William Marks, Athelia Rigdon, and Eliza Winters. And, of course, this this particular list I found on Fair Mormon, which is an apologetic site. So, um... Wow. Yeah, yeah, and this is just this is just Joseph. Uh, last episode we actually recounted the the tale of Martha Brotherton, but that our audio was so bad we didn't use it. But Martha Brotherton is the first woman that uh, Brigham Young allegedly approached, and of course to be his plural wife. And of course she, it's a failed proposal, and she runs and tells the press about it. And Mormon apologetics, they what they say is she was a friend to to uh, John C. Bennett, who was a critic of Joseph Smith, and John C. Bennett was practicing spiritual wifery, whereas Joseph Smith wasn't. And the arguments are so funny to me because they are based on faith. They are accusing John C. Bennett of um, being biased towards the church, and therefore his account isn't credible. However, they can't apply the same logic to Joseph, right? That Joseph was biased towards the church and that his arguments are somehow now credible because of that. And so um, a lot of these these women are maligned and dismissed because they become critics of the church. It's sort of this idea that they are tools of the, of the devil and that um, Joseph was this near-perfect man and that the devil sends these women to destroy him. And that's that's a really harmful narrative. We've seen that applied throughout history, you know, with women. Mm-hmm. But what is the problem with uh, with people when, when someone comes forward and they're dismissed like that? What can that contribute to? Oh, well, these young women then know that, well, somebody else has, has gone before me, tried it, and, and uh, been uh, dismissed or ridiculed or just or called a... Uh, um, you know, a slut, basically, and so they they don't come forward. It's really sad. Yeah, and of silence. one of the one of the themes with these women, the names that I listed, is one of the ongoing things in their accounts is if they started to hint that they were uncomfortable with it. So usually the pattern is Joseph knew them, as you can see in that list. A lot of those women were associated with men that Joseph knew, and the added element is Joseph was using them to establish this behavior of secrecy, right? They mm-hmm. He would give them special favors, as they called it, otherwise. So they were kind of complicit in this doctrine as well. And um, 
so these these particular women were usually someone in a close association, but if they became uncomfortable with it, many of them say that Joseph threatened to ruin their reputation. And uh, you can look up the old copies of the Sangamo Journal, and there's this this interesting um, account from oh, who is it? It's Melissa Schindel. You can look her up. And she says, you know, that she was called a whore. Joseph threatened to call her a whore. And of course he does. Uh, he, he prints and publishes this. And it's, it's a huge problem. Um, tell us about these threats and how, um, this can affect victims. Oh, right. And thank you for bringing this up because I'd forgotten to mention that an integral part of grooming is, is the secrecy. So, um, yeah, that, that really makes, makes me sad that he, uh, that he did call her a whore in print too, and but but not uncommon. People will go to great lengths to keep their um, their offense um, secret and silent, and and they'll. Um, it's very common. I mean, like I said, I've listened to um, so many sexual histories and offenses of of people who have done done this, and and it's just so common to say, you know, if you tell. Um, you're not only gonna ruin me, you're gonna ruin yourself too. Like, no, nobody will believe you, and if they do believe you, um, you know, you're, you'll be, you know, you'll be nothing, um, socially and in the family. I mean, a lot of these were, were in the family. So, so yeah, it, it just, it's one of the, one of the sadder parts of, of the process. Will you tell me how secrecy is an important aspect in enabling predators? Yeah. Um, well, ab- absolutely. Um, it's the it's the only way to to avoid getting caught. So, I mean, it's it's of utmost importance that that they keep it secret as long as they can. So, I'm going to read a little bit about Sarah Pratt. She's probably one of the more well known ones. Like I said, I've avoided talking about this because I was trying to be fair, but um, I just I don't want to be complicit in a harmful system. Sarah Pratt was married to Orson Pratt in a, around 1836, and it's said that while he was on a mission to England, Joseph approached her, and he was said to have declared, quote, Sister Pratt, the Lord has given you to me as one of my spiritual wives. I have the blessings of Jacob granted me, and as he granted holy men of old, and I have looked upon you with favor and hope you will not repulse or deny me. And she is said to have said, quote, Am I called to break the marriage covenant to my lawful husband? I never will. I care not for the blessings of Jacob, and I believe no such revelations, neither will I consent, and under any circumstances, I have one good husband, and that is enough for me, end quote. And um, it's said that he threatened to, you know, besmirch her, and we do know that he does, that when she denies him and Orson comes home, Joseph goes on this campaign to say that she was having an affair with John C. Bennett. And actually, apologists will still use the evidence to say that she was sleeping with John C. Bennett. And um, they they presented all these affidavits saying that she was. And they, uh, they were printed in the Nauvoo Wasps. And, of course, there's a woman that comes later and she says, uh, let's see, she says that she signed the affidavit, but she said, quote, it is not my fault. Hiram Smith came to our house with the affidavits all written out and forced us to sign them. 
The church and Joseph must be saved. We saw that resistance was useless. They would have ruined us, so we signed the papers. But there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole huge bit of Mormon apologetics to dismiss these women's stories. And I suppose I would be, we do know that false accusations happen. This happens today. It's, it's happened throughout history. People do have ulterior motives. They have agendas. However, the evidence is pretty staggering. And like I said, there's a whole list of women. And then we have the women that it was successful attempts and their stories are not unsimilar. And so I would encourage you to, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these failed proposals, but there is a whole list. I will link to it on Fair Mormon. You can research it. You can read the apologetics if you, if you want to go there. Um, but I just think it's really important that you make sure that you're using the same sort of logic in defending Joseph as you would be in uh, defending these women as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I'm glad you're doing that. Okay, so uh, when you're faithful and you're active, mm-hmm. and you have a desire to to remain so, so how how do you reconcile these stories? Do you is there an, is there an inclination in you to want to think that maybe it's taken out of context? Do you mean the Joseph's accusations? Yeah, that the these uh, you know, Nancy Rigdon and Martha Brotherton and all of these stories. Um, I I tend to believe them. And I mean that that goes to my original point in in the op-ed that that I think it's it's very compatible to be to be faithful and to to recognize that that Joseph um was wrong um got this in my opinion completely wrong and and um you know I just was telling my husband this last night that that you know if if God can can work through Joseph in, in spite of his being deeply deeply flawed then then there's there's hope for us all like I I sincerely believe that so can, let's talk more about your op-ed, and you gave some suggestions, like you said, um, you mentioned, you touched on a little bit, but will you tell us more about those? Mormon feminists would be familiar with the background of that, but will you talk to us about some of the suggestions and why you think they're needed? Sure. Well, first and foremost, like I said, reforming worthiness interviews is an, an, a very important issue for me, so that... Um, people aren't put into potentially compromising positions, talking about their, their um, sexuality of a, of a youth with an older authority figure. So that's first. Um, beyond that, I, I really hope that the authors of, of the polygamy essay will reconsider their, their mollifying language toward Joseph secrecy. Um, like we were talking earlier in, in the, uh, in the podcast, um, that is, that is how um, these, um, offenses last as long as they do, uh, is, is keeping it secret. And I, I think in most, most people reading the essays are probably going to think that, that something was off there anyway, that, that when, when, uh, Joseph's talking about, when, when the authors talk about Joseph, um, marrying women behind Emma's back and, um, behind the Mormon community's back for the most part, um, with accepting a very small inner circle, then that's, um, and it's, it's just, it's wrong. And, and I, it really, um, 
it, I, I don't think it, it's doing youth any service at all to, to try to justify that. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, those are the, the two main things that, um, and beyond what, what we, we talked about earlier is just admitting that Joseph was wrong <laughs> and, and the way he practiced polygamy. Uh, I, I really hope that, that those, these essays will change, especially since they're going to be taught um, or referenced at the very least in seminary and Sunday school. Well, I appreciate you taking the courage to actually to say this. It gave me courage, and I apologize to my listeners that I haven't been more strong about it until now. I will emphatically say that I think that the way that Mormon polygamy is practiced is wrong. I think it has been abused from the very beginning. And like I said, unless I see a change in that, they're very then I'm not going to change my mind. There's overwhelming evidence to suggest that this was a hard, difficult, usually abusive practice to many women where they were treated as chattel. And the fruits of that are still continuing today. There are, of course, some families that practice it without the abusive situations. And of course, monogamous families are not exempt from abuse either. However, I think the added element with this is we, we do this in God's name and I, and I believe that's particularly insidious. So, uh, I just appreciate you having the courage to say that. Oh, thanks, Lindsay. And I, I, I admire you for, for this, this year of polygamy. I'm, I'm so grateful that it exists. Well, hopefully we'll, you know, we're going to progress more and tell the stories and I'm going to let fundamentalists tell their stories. So, they too can be represented. I don't want to silence the voices of any women and their experiences. But again, I would, I would caution listeners out there and those in Mormon studies to make sure that, that their research is responsible and ethical and not harming or, uh, contributing to, uh, potential harm of victims. So tell us, is there a follow up to this op-ed? Yeah, actually the Trib is publishing my, my response. Um, in letter form on Sunday, so so stay tuned. What's the response to? Uh, to to the most common criticisms about the essay um, that marrying fourteen year olds was completely normal and common back then. That's that's the big one. I was surprised how often I got that. Like, you're you're judging a diff- uh, Joseph by the wrong standards. Uh, back then it was totally normal, and so I I have some that Todd Compton helps me out with. So oh, I think that'll help. And just, and other um, complaints bring up, but that's the main one. So uh, thanks again, Christy, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay. And everyone, thanks for listening. You can leave a donation at feministbornhousewivespodcast.org if you'd like to see this project continue. And um, Christy Money is online. If you want to send her an encouraging note to counteract all the hate mail, that would be lovely. Uh, and uh, I'm going to link to her op-ed so you can, you can read that as well. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.